Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Horse Geeks podcast, where we look at horses and riding from the inside out. I'm Kirsten Nelson, professional horse trainer, and with me today is a really special guest, my good friend, Teresa Vossen. We grew up together. Like, we went to school together from kindergarten to eighth grade, and you're just, you're such a huge part of my life growing up. Mm-hmm. And then contacted me sort of out of the blue, listening to the podcast and excited that what you're doing with kids somehow has is running parallel to what I'm talking about with horses. And so mm-hmm. we haven't, I, this, I'm actually finding out along with you guys, Teresa, we probably haven't talked in years. So this is super exciting to reconnect and find out what you're doing and how that's like, you really liked the podcast. And so I'm curious to go, how are you taking what we're talking about with horses and understanding that in your work with kids? Okay. Um, Well, actually tell us what you do first. Okay. (laughs) So currently I am serving as a social worker. I work with military families um, at a base in, uh, Virginia and Southern Virginia. And um, I came, I moved from New York after living there for 35 years and raising my kids and going to like went to college and never left. So I call that that's the place where I actually grew up, not where I was raised. (laughs) Uh, And um, had pursued, was in the middle of getting my uh, master's degree in sports psychology. And I got that in 2022. Um, wanting to work with athletes. Um, my, my, per- as you know, my family growing up, we were, I mean, all of us were athletes in that yes. area and, uh, and my siblings and I were very active. And then my, my sons are also very active in, in the athletic uh, arena. They played lacrosse in college. And one of them is a college lacrosse coach now. And my husband was a coach. So there's just a lot of um, things that we're mixing as my social work um, history and then wanting to learn more about sort of dynamics and culture and with sport. Um, so I moved here to take a position working with, with soldiers doing the work, the work that I do was the place I was working was part of the ready and resilience mission of the army. Ah, so, um, that's what we were as, as a sport performance coach, mental performance coach. Um, and, I shifted to social work in April. I did that for about eight months and shifted to social work. So now I'm supporting families with kids zero to three. But for 25 years prior, I worked as a school social worker in Ithaca, New York. Um, and I worked with kids pre-K to um, their senior year of high school, uh, basically throughout the years. I just was always... I have a love of learning, I realize, And so I was always trying to find something else I could learn that was when I was interested. So I just, I did a variety of jobs and, uh, and here I am. So. And it's interesting that you worked with like sports, basically mental readiness with mm -hmm. both um, athletes and military personnel. Somewhat the athletes I was working with were mostly my kids um, and doing some, (laughs) uh, and doing some work. and in, with some local high school kids um, and then transferring that right with, with the military. And that, that was a lot of fun just to watch, just to see how the brain works when people are under pressure, right? That's kind of what we did sometimes. And, and that's what we were training at least military folks in is how you shift your thinking when, as you've been talking about, when that fear arises, how do you, how do you access your resilience when you're not sure you can do it or when you have a pain somewhere in your body or an injury. And then the same thing with kids in schools, how to teach really teaching the adults to co-help co-regulate the kids. And you've talked about this with your, with the horse work, um, just being one with, with the horse and, and meeting them where their energy is instead of expecting their, their energy to meet your energy, that sort of piece. So, um, it's, it's all colliding somewhat. Yeah. It's so, because it is, even when I've looked at, I've talked to different athletes, like especially people who do Ironman and CrossFit training, Mm -hmm. like that's where 
it's most similar to my work because it's really about having to learn conscious control of the body and mind. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. whether we're sort of focused a little bit more on the mind or the nervous system or the coordination of the body, it's really one in the same. And being able to access that under stress is particularly challenging. Yes, but sure. Um, and and how I came about listening to your podcast was I've always had a love of horses too. So um, I was friends after college with someone who owned a horse farm. I ended up leasing a horse for a summer and was able to care for horses when she'd go away. I mean, I had never been around horses really other than like rides at Innsbruck or something. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe, but nothing that was ever a uh, lesson. And I had a great time that summer and then started uh, was getting my master's and then got pregnant and, and um, wasn't able to keep riding. I was too busy. Entered it again, maybe 10, eight years ago. Um, my husband's like here for Christmas, take these lessons. So I was engaged with someone for a year and, and that feeling of being, of having a horse underneath me and me being aligned with it, it was very clear to me that my stress was causing this, the horse to take me for a ride, so to speak. Ah. Like I could, it was that, um, that, uh, like one time I was in the ring and I was jumping and then it decided the horse, the side dusty decided to, uh, just sprint gallop, just take off. Yeah. Right. And I was like, oh my gosh. And he knew exactly who I was but was like, I'm tired of you, like nothing, <laughs> right? So, um, and and before, so that was my first stint. And then my second stint, I had, um, how had I gotten? I had started, I was training for a marathon, decided to uh, do some yoga. Yoga led to mindfulness and doing some therapy. And then mindfulness is when I, when I had started mindfulness, that's when the horse lessons, the second round of horse lessons came in. And I had said to my instructor, like, she's like, why, you know, why horses? Why? And I just said, you know, my, I can be more mindful on a horse because I can feel the feedback quicker. Mm. Like I understand what's happening and what went wrong or where I was awry or however you want mm -hmm. to say it, like what I was missing <clears throat> it, really. Um, in the first round 20 years prior. So uh, when I heard your podcast and knew my own experience and then per, on a horse yeah, and um, connecting it to the relationship was really what drives performance for anybody really. Um, whatever is, can be a mode is often a motivator you have to have a good relationship with someone in order to perform well. If you look at cultures and teams, you can sort of see they either have a relationship with a player or a coach, but some, but you at least need one person who can help guide you through. Absolutely. Um, and I think that relationship, like that dynamic of it is what's so fascinating. Working with horses, you're always in a constant partnership, like a dance partner. It's not mm -hmm. just you, but both the horse and you are bringing something to the table. But mm -hmm. together, both the rider and the horse can be greater than the sum of its parts. Completely. And, yeah. Like a team. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. <clears throat> and to hear your, to hear what you've been talking about in terms of, um, the writers and, and folks that you serve and the clients that you serve. And at one point I heard you say like, well, a lot of competitive writers are type A. Uh, that's true of most like people at a highly competitive level. And I find that there are certain. Um, so in speaking to that, it, that's like also teaching them to let go. And that's not always an easy process. No, that can be the hardest part of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, no, and horses have a way through their behavior. And it's probably like working with kids in that 90% of the communication is nonverbal. 
Yes. It's all happening through energy and body language and behavior or actions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's how we have to sort of read where our horse is coming from. And it's Mm -hmm. actually helped me tremendously become a better teacher because as humans, we can get really caught up in the words that are coming out of people's mouth. But I go behind those words, there's energy and there's tone and frequency. And Mm -hmm. all of that is what's really giving the communication more meaning. So it sort of learning that nonverbal language with horses help tremendously, even with verbal communication. Yeah. Cause it changes your tone, right? If you're noticing that a horse isn't comfortable for whatever reason, based on their, the nonverbals that they're giving you, you're not going to talk to them or you're not going to give them direction in this, but in the same tone that you would, if they were in a better place and they could take a harsher sort of more uh, staccato sort of yeah. uh, um, feedback or instruction. Right. So, um, or like your first set of lessons where the horse took off with you, I go, that usually happens to all of us because we're either so busy sort of learning heels down, shoulders back, do this, do that, approach the jump, all these sort of mechanical management issues that we just get completely disconnected from the horse underneath Mm us. Mm -hmm. And the horses, I call that a private lesson when they suddenly go, Hey, Hey, I'm just here to show you that you've sort of forgotten about your partner here. So I'm going to take you for a ride and see how you like it. So true. It's so true. And that's what I've been thinking about after listening to your podcast. Like, yeah, they were just doing their best to teach me in the best way they knew how, you know? Yeah. Um, So definitely. And, and I just had my self-awareness wasn't as strong. I didn't have as much then as I do now. So also Mm. just knowing my own body, knowing my own responses to trying new things, you know, I I might dive in, but I also might have like right now I'm sensing it in my sternum. Um, As I'm speaking, I'm in turn, I'm in tune with this is a little nerve wracking. You know, I'm, I'm being kind of vulnerable with Kirsten. I haven't seen her for a very long time and I'm on this podcast. Um, and I could either just let it go and go and start breathing hard, making my breathing harder. If I stop and pause, as you said, and just sort of see what's happening, like acknowledge it as, yeah. as they say, and sort of just accept it. And then I have lots of choices of what I can do. And it's not always the same. I don't always pick the same thing twice. You know, it might just be like, take a deep breath and tell myself I'm okay. And then move on. So it's that same sort of, um, that is so well put. It's really well put. And I think a lot of times when adults come into writing, I would say one of the main, one of the main focuses of learning to ride is really, like you maybe did with yoga, that mindfulness or that self-awareness, getting back into our bodies and a little Mm. less in our heads. Mm. And I think especially like you're quite academic and, you know, just like I think all of us, when I was more type A in my writing and a competitive writer, it was like certain things just eluded me because I wasn't aware Mm. of even what I was feeling sometimes I was so busy trying to get the job done that it was like, Oh, that's what the horses are feeling and why they constantly take off. And I have this electric, butt. ah, now I'm getting it. Okay. But they would keep showing me over and over, Hey, you're missing something. Mm -hmm. And that coming back into our tactile sense coming back into our sort of kinesthetic learning mode, I think is what working with horses wakes back up in people. Mm -hmm. It's always there, but it's like, we sort of just, you know, become less and less tactile as we age where kids are still growing and changing and learning. And that's still a huge part of their awareness and their communication. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's ever changing, depending upon who the people are in front of them. And and thinking about kids who have experienced trauma, which I just 
is probably most of the kids I've ever worked with. And the more I, and my, and my own family history of being aware of my own trauma um, and how, you know, so there's also, I'm aware of that, making sure I'm not getting triggered by things that they're, that, that was always a little tricky for me to make sure, like if I was working with someone who experienced something similar to me and they're a kid, sometimes that could work in my favor and sometimes it could work against sort of the exchanges that I had in terms of my ability to come to approach it. Um, and the kids who have trauma, as you've been talking about with horses, with especially rescued horses, it's a similar sort of piece. They go straight into the sympathetic nervous system and, and it's fright or flight. Um, oftentimes, and, and my experience with teachers has been a lot of times if they're not aware it's like, I don't know what happened. I don't know what happened. Mm. Um, they just went, they just went off. I just said one thing or the kid read, the parent teacher didn't realize it, but the kid read something non-verbally and it triggered them. And then they went into a, you know, then they might have uh, went into that. defensive mode. Yeah. Right. Right. So, um, so being able to help a child co-regulate and like, let them borrow the energy, which you've talked about a lot, but, um, and to know that energy is contagious, no matter with whom, right? Like it's that, it's that vibration. It's that, um, that not all of us are keyed into, but there's a vibration that happens between and among all of us. Um, even when we're in the woods and there's no one else there, right. We're still getting vibrations from the, from the trees. So being able to accept somebody else's vibrations and send back something that might be calmer. And that's just a simple thing as pausing. Pausing is so important. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> taking a breath. So my breath can help regulate their breath. And I noticed when I did that on the horse, when I was riding, because I was clear about what I needed to, what I was doing with kids, but on the horse, I'm like, oh, I can just transfer this mindfulness stuff and whatever I'm doing with kids into the horse. I was more present. Um, on the horse as I had been practicing to be more present with the kids and the yeah. and staff I was serving too, because you never know who's experienced what as adults. And I have, there's a, a psychologist named Ross Green. He does a lot of work or has done a lot of work on uh, one of his books is explosive children. And, and he just, his mantra is if they could, they would. So I really take that. Mm, I love that. that. I've been using that a lot in my own thinking for the last 10 years, just like, okay, like no judgment. It's judgment-free zone because we're all doing our best, right? We're and doing our best with what we know. And I go, know, that's, right? that's you know, for people to label horses as stubborn or aggressive or resistant, it, it makes it sound like they're doing it for no reason. Yeah. But they just yeah. sort of thought it up. And I yeah. go, no, <laughs> right. you know, horses are doing the best they can with what they know. And yeah. There's a lot of challenges with horses from the horse's perspective that we don't always consider because we haven't looked at things through their eyes. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the same with anybody. We don't always know why somebody's being triggered. It could have nothing to do with us, but we're either going to make it worse or we're going to help. And it, what was the title of that book again? The Explosive Child. The yeah. And, right. and I started my work... <clears throat> really working with horses that other people didn't want to work with. And they're labeled as difficult horses. Okay. As having these behavioral problems. And in sort of unwinding that, <clears throat> what was amazing with horses is the rate at which they could change because okay. they're just not as complicated as humans. And so right. Right. when you start to offer a horse a better deal, they start taking it sometimes faster than a human just because it, their brains are less complicated, their lives mm -hmm. are less complicated. And to watch horses not forget, knowing that they have exceptional memories, but to forgive and become mm -hmm. resilient again, that they could start over trusting mm -hmm. or letting down their defensiveness. I go, when their needs are met, the problems go away. Yeah. Yeah. And that was a massive epiphany because I go, I didn't have to have any special training techniques or any special gadgets. It was really about helping the horse feel safe yeah. because as long as they're acting out explosively, what they're screaming at us is they don't feel yeah. safe. 
right? Right. And I, I kind of the same with people, really, kids or otherwise. Yeah, yeah. We all just want to feel safe with wherever we are. It's that like part of our self-determination and that we really just want to feel competent and accepted, you know, mm-hmm. um, and understood and being able to have and belong. So um, why wouldn't a horse, because they've been acculturated to be around humans, why wouldn't they want a relationship? Especially right. when they, we ask them to do all of these things uh, that maybe they're not in the mood to do. And I exactly. feel like similar to what happens when kids walk into a school building, you know, like here I am, you don't know what, you know, I might not be in the right mood to be here, but I'm here. So figure out, you know, I'm relying on you to, to make sure you can understand where I'm coming from kind of thing. And that's, yeah. Cause relationships true. are complicated. And a yes. lot of people say, I want to have, I'll say, what are your goals with your horse? And they'll say, well, I really want to have a great relationship with my horse. And I go, okay, but we need to think like child or spouse is a relationship. They don't do what you want them to do all the time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. part of that relationship is the give and take of understanding the other and and being understood. Mm -hmm. And so that give and take is a relationship. And most of the time people go, I want a relationship with my horse means I want my horse to do what I tell them. And I go, it doesn't work with kids. It doesn't work with spouses. That's not a real relationship. Right, right. And as so much of what you've been talking about on the podcast, I've been listening to, I'm like, just insert parent. (laughs) For Um, horse owners. Yeah, Uh, yeah. You know, you work with owners, but just in terms of trainers, owners. Or riders, yes. Or riders, right? Like, it's, it's very similar. Yeah. And what I want him to do. It's like, okay, well, what motivates him? What, what is it like? What are you going to do to like, how can you shift or can you, you know, can you shift your own thinking so that you can accept that your three-year-old doesn't really want to do what you want him to do? (laughs) Like control the controllables. And that would be your thoughts. And so exactly your thoughts, the rest comes into, into focus. No, and after being deeply immersed in the horse world, it was like I took a big break and started looking around at psychological models, Mm -hmm. looking at sports models as far as like training the mechanics or improving sports performance. And I found a lot better information outside of the horse world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I used to say all the time there was a show on TV called Super Nanny. And I go, Super Nanny is one of the best horse trainers on TV. (laughs) Like she gets it, this sort of blend of the the role of the parent balancing the love with the structure, like, Mm -hmm. you know, having structure for having boundaries, feeling safe, having an orderliness, but never feeling unloved or or punished. It's like she could really balance those two Mm -hmm. things of giving Mm -hmm. structure and affection and not Mm -hmm. too much one or the other, or it would the kids would turn into little monsters and her turnaround rate was fantastic. Yeah. Yes. And, and that's a question I have for you in terms of the training. um, When people are asking you to fix my horse kind of thing, um, what they're doing in a, what's happening with them in a parallel structure that allows them to meet mm. allows and and sounds like the woman in the case study is responding well to what her horse needs um from what yes all of that whole thing needs. went sideways for the past couple of weeks oh my okay. god <laughs> i have to well, i have to catch up with ozzy he's back on track but we went through an abscess in the foot and then a nail in the foot. And then I got COVID and it's like every, (laughs) I have to update those, but he's coming along great. And the only reason I take horses in training and what I tell people is I'm here to sort of bridge the gap, kind of like with some parents and children, Mm -hmm. sometimes, you know, somebody else has to step in and say, okay, you over here, you over there. Mm-hmm. And with the horses, because their rate of change is so much faster than humans, I can sort of show the horse where we're going. 
Mm. through the training, through how I interact with the horse, and at least create a bridge for safety purposes, right? Or like in Ozzy's case, he's a safe horse to ride, but with his physical issues, I'm showing him where we're going physically in changing his coordination and use into something healthier. Mm -hmm. And so I can show the horse that, but it's so dynamic that there's no way I could take a perfectly balanced and well-trained horse and hand it over to anybody and have it stick. Mm -hmm. I go because our energy is always influencing the horse and how we ride as a dynamic weight and mass is always in and how we use the tools to give our aids. All of that is a dynamic influence that I can't do that for you at a certain point. You have to learn to do this with your horse. Mm -hmm. So it's a little bit of both. So for safety purposes or marriage counseling or family counseling, I go, I can bring the horse along a little bit ahead and show the horse where we're going. And that seems to build in a margin of error where the Mm. horse kind of goes, okay, my human isn't great at this, but I get that my human is trying. And, and so they don't, they aren't as quick to become defensive or unsafe. They, They have a little more patience and a tolerance threshold because they feel safer and more comfortable in their own skin. And that's what really builds that tolerance or resilience to come back from these triggers or come back from these challenges that we all encounter. I go, it's not that it doesn't happen. You know, we're all going to get triggered and we're all going to make mistakes, but it's that sort of coming back into relationship that ultimately makes the riding safe and fun. Yeah. Yeah. And I've noticed that the gap is once someone experiences some level of trust, it does become it, it sort of exponentially. What's the word? It makes exponentially. it exponentially. Exponentially, um, the rate of learning is just that much faster, right? It's huge. I'm so up. glad you said that because that's been absolutely my experience. Is that the hardest part of dealing with difficult horses or explosive children is sort of getting through that first, those first layers of fear and defensiveness. And once the horse starts to feel like, oh, when I'm with you, I can start to feel safe. And as you know, we're changing hormones, we're changing body chemistry, we're changing globally on the inside of that individual. And a little taste of that goes a long way. Yeah, it's true. And and it's like you're chipping away and chipping away, making progress in inches. And then there's a certain, I always called it like a a, a critical mass where all of a sudden the horse realizes I'm safe with you most of the time. And, And suddenly they can just do a lot more and they're less reactive across the board. Mm-hmm. It just starts to generalize or translate out much faster, but every individual kind of has this threshold where that, you know, you're working hard for every inch of progress up front, having to prove, I can help you, I can help you, I can help you. And then yeah. it starts to leapfrog forward. Yeah. And you were, as you were talking, I was thinking about a training I took, I don't know, very long ago. Um and it was by a social worker who said, you know, every time you add a piece, like our, our job working with kids and I'd say horses too, or anyone, any of us who are providing service to another living being um, is to help build the house. Right. And we get to be part of building a foundation mm-hmm. and to know that those bricks never leave the foundation. They're always, they're always there. Right. So if a horse learns that, or if a child or even an adult like me learns that, um, it just makes it easier to transfer that experience to someone else that also maybe that they feel that the energy is, is compatible. Yes. Right? So that's another exciting piece that 
like, like energy is contagious, good and bad, right? Like positive and negative or however effective or ineffective, whatever that energy is, you want to call it. Um, then it, we also get to transfer and people can trust that if I can trust one person, maybe I can trust two. If yes. People, maybe I can trust four or three and a half or something yes. like that. So that's another exciting thing to watch. Um, at least in children, I was one child I worked with who's just doing phenomenally as mom and I are still in touch, even though I've left the area um, and experienced some, again, early trauma, which I'm just convinced that most people in our country have experienced some form of trauma in one way or another. Um, uh, of course, most many of folks who have experienced trauma was it due to enslavement, but those of us who came here as immigrants, um, just leaving a country is enough trauma that takes seven generations to get out. So it's like that piece of the transference. Um, but knowing that if you can trust one person, you can just do amazing, do amazing, amazing things. And so this boy yeah. um, had a phenomenal, just had a really good relationship with the teacher and the teacher was open to, um, to being patient and knowing that this was going to be a year. She wasn't expecting changes in a week mm. little by little they were doing the dance and because um, he could be pretty, he could, he had explosive isn't the word, but just very high. Like he had, when he was emotional, he was very emotional. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, and they just hung in there with each other. And it was just very exciting to watch it unfold. And by the end of that year, he got, he hadn't been a reader. He didn't said he didn't like reading mm -hmm. an award for someone in our region as the person who had read the most minutes on like they on a, um, it was a, a program like mm -hmm. a computer program, you know, you could access right. books and he had accessed the most out of anyone K to 12. So that's in amazing. Short, you know, in a short period of time, it was a good 10 months of just effort and consistency building that trust he's flying now yeah so, and out of his whole life 10 months is nothing no like even with no. a horse if it takes a year to get through the rehab i go out of that horse's whole life mm -hmm. this is maybe the first opportunity this horse has had to make this turnaround yeah and so to me it's incredibly fast Rather than, you know, I guess people still expect walk, trot, canter in 90 days and my horse is magically trained. But I go, it's much deeper than that if you're really looking at the development of the individual, which mm -hmm. to me is horse training, is a process of education, not just sort of getting the things done. Yes. And same for the rider. And especially after an injury, like there's the research out there for humans um, in terms of injury, we all have different responses mentally to it. Some of us see it as like something we want to push through as you were talking, like tougher, just take it, suck it up, buttercup, like yeah. <laughs> just do it kind of thing, what you were talking about, like what you mentioned before in the resilience or in my experience, I had shin splints and I was, I was a really anxious runner after that until I got over my hump. I don't know what got me over the hump, but there was, I was training, I was doing a long run and it was in a race. Um, and I didn't know, I didn't know the route. I hadn't seen the route before. Um, mm -hmm. and it was like the last two miles. I think I was running like 22 miles that day and I was just getting nervous. I could feel it, but I didn't really know what it was until later on when I, when my son got injured and then, um, and then I had, I think it was that time when my son got injured and then I was doing some work around this, you now my sport psychology piece of how injury impacts. Oh, absolutely. The, the ability. Body. So I'm just imagining from a horse's point of view, they just know it hurts. Right. So, uh, and I've never met a horse. Like all horses have personalities, their own individual personalities. Oh, and, absolutely. You know, like, it's not like one, whatever applies to one horse applies to all the others. So how they communicate that and how then you get to read that if you're rehabbing them, especially after an injury, how you 
I'm thinking it's, they can't point to say like, oh, it's this part of my ankle. <laughs> no, they act out through behavior. Okay, and so right, that's, okay. that's exactly part of the communication is, and one of my clients said this, I thought she nailed it so beautifully, that if we look at skill development, sort of like bricks, what mm -hmm. I'm trying to do is put the mortar in that holds okay. the bricks in place. So the mortar is made out of, are we working in a parasympathetic state versus a sympathetic state? That's mm -hmm. part of what keeps the skill development really solid. And then coordination wise, are we working with a mechanical efficiency? And it's not just, it does enhance performance, but the most important part of that is the health of the horse, right? So movement mm -hmm. is a key part of health, but we tend to separate veterinary care, uh, bodywork treatments from what we're doing in the training ring. And mm -hmm. I go there, it's one in the same. So you can't, mm -hmm. it's the animal-like part of us that when we get injured or you didn't know you had shin splints, but you started to have the anxiety that your body was saying, hey, something's wrong here. And mm -hmm. so you didn't have words for it and you didn't know why, but that anxiety that was surfacing because of an injury is exactly why horses are acting out behaviorally or resisting what we want them to do in training. They're sort of telling us, I either don't feel safe or I don't feel comfortable. And those yeah. two things kind of have to go, they're one in the same ultimately. And so if I have an unknown pain issue in the horse, or let's say it's not even a pain issue, it's just a level of discomfort, then the horse is gonna start showing me through behavior becoming more and more defensive over time mm. that there's a problem here. Yeah. Yeah. And I accidentally noticed that in hindsight, when I was doing natural horsemanship where everything was psychological based, um, I was apprenticing with a trainer. And as part of the apprentice program, we got all the really difficult horses that were donated into the program. And we were the first layer of working with the horses before they would then hopefully move into the school program. <clears throat> and after doing that about two years, I started noticing every single horse that was labeled as difficult had a hard to diagnose, not easy to find level of pain or discomfort or problem some were teeth, some were feet, some were endocrine systems, some were, you know, musculoskeletal issues. Some of them were um, different problems that the horse had had for years that nobody diagnosed. Yeah. And so over time, punishing that horse compounded the problem and moved them from the category of not so easy into dangerous and difficult. And it was just sad to me to sort of see how that constant cycle is either negatively feeding itself or like everything I do with just helping a horse shift into the parasympathetic state, I go, that can be done at halt where I'm no longer having to challenge the body if there is an issue that I know nothing about. Yeah. I assume the horse is protecting something that there's some level of dis discomfort, if not pain, but at least, you know, I can help the horse feel safe with me and just get started there. Yeah. That I'm That's... not going to create more pain or add to the problem. We're going to start to reverse that stress, physical stress. Right. And it goes back to just as you, it's like, it's just listening and we have to listen with our bodies and our ears and our attention and, and really you were keyed so keyed into that um and if you were apprenticing i'm guessing you didn't like just the whole experience was new in terms of the types of horses and behaviors that were coming and then just you noticing that pattern and sometimes patterns are good for us and sometimes they're not so good but in this case it really worked for you to notice what that pattern was and not and to be able to respond to it um it was a big and epiphany, just like you probably find with kids somewhere, and we may never know the specifics, but somewhere under all of that sort of undesirable 
behavior or performance or lack of skill development, there's a reason. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I go, right? Yeah. I go, there's yeah, a reason. Yeah. It's, it's not <laughs> coming. <laughs> it's not like a, a person or a horse just woke up and went, I think I'll be obstinate today because it right. feels good. Exactly. You know, yeah. I, I think I'll be stubborn and wayward and rebellious because I, I just like it. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's that sense of all behavior, sense of message, behavior is communication, right? Um, Absolutely. With any living being, we say that that's a common thing for, yeah, it's just something that is maybe more of a, just a a well-known saying in the parenting and sort of social work psychology People yeah, because if you think them. about it, as humans are growing and bodies are changing and we don't really always have the vocabulary, we don't have the cognition to describe in detail what's going on inside of us. Mm-hmm. And so kids, like horses, are expressing through energy and behavior what's going on inside of them. Yeah. And until they can learn to engage that parasympathetic system, that's when they can start to find the words if they know the words but can't access them when they're when they're speeding you know so right when the the accelerator's on um so what's something you do or something that you teach um when you're helping someone learn to access or shift that nervous system access a parasympathetic state it's first it's just doing um i just begin with breath work. I I don't have all of the techniques myself when I need to access something to get my energy <laughs> up. I go online to my guy, Tim. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but, but it's really just doing a body scan with some young kids or just noticing in kids, oh, I see your, you know, I see your hands are clenched or you have a frown on your face, sort of doing some observation of what I see on their body. And sometimes it, it depends how early we are in, in a relationship and working together and knowing me sometimes just being observed for someone is not comfortable. So like Mm. that's something that can trigger, but it's just starting with what I observe and notice and to see if they notice it and sort of get the layers, go through the layers. Um, And then maybe they can identify a feeling. And then as we progress, trying to find where it is in your body and then when you feel that in your body and if it's an uncomfortable piece, what can you do to help that? How can you change your thoughts and teaching folks just how to, you know, control your thoughts. That's um, so powerful. So it, uh, yeah, it, it is. And it's simple. It's also very, it's very simple. Like yeah. it's not rocket science. It's just um, patience and um, diligence and awareness. You know, it's just teaching folks to be aware. Um, and sometimes, yeah, just teaching folks to be aware. And it's possible for anybody, really. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, no, and for all of the like complex explanations, I go, bodies are very complex systems, minds are very complex. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, we're sort of hardwired if we do take a pause, if we do sort of step back and observe rather than projecting, you know, what Mm. we're thinking or what our expectations are, when we just step back and observe, I go, I find everybody can look at their horse and sort of get a general idea of what that horse is thinking and feeling. Yeah. I go, and it will never be confirmed verbally, but <laughs> through actions, body language, energy, it's like the horse is sort of saying yes or no to us all the time. Yeah. And that much we can read. Mm-hmm. Yes. And to make it that simple, like understanding the complexity of it took years of study and research. But I go at the end of the day, I can just stand there with a horse and do nothing and just watch that energy sort of, you know, mm-hmm. all that defensiveness just come off in layers because I'm not adding to the problem. I'm just observing and sort of holding space. Or I think we do very much loan each other or share a lot of communication 
through the energy or the the frequency of our energy and just thinking calm thoughts even if i'm yeah. not saying it out loud you know yeah. looking at my horse with curiosity instead of condemnation like mm -hmm. it changes everything immediately yeah. yeah approaching a horse with a smile right it's a different sort of like and i uh i used to love well just to backtrack, that's part of that co-regulation that I was talking about, how we regulate ourselves to regulate the person or the being in front of us, right? So mm. like, if you're looking at a horse with curiosity and not condemnation, they are going to pick up on that, right? If you're not on them, they're totally going to pick up on it. You've experienced that. And it's the same thing with other beings. Um, one of my favorite parts about lessons was um, saddle it, like prep prep and clean up, you know, mm -hmm. just having those 20, possibly 20 to 40 minutes, you know, before the lesson, just to talk to the horse. And luckily I was able each time to ride the same horse for most lessons. So that helped. But if I was given a different horse, I had to, had to sort of figure out what the relationship was going to be with this horse before I did anything. So absolutely. And, and that's, I think what helped me too, because I am, I, by nature, am, have empathy and uh, like to engage. And I need, I need connection if I'm going to to engage with something. And I had that same approach with horses and. Uh, and they're so, so receptive to that because that yeah. is literally their language. Mm -hmm. Like we think it's sort of subtle, yes. but I go, it's not subtle to horses. <laughs> no. Like our thoughts are just broadcasted out there to horses. Mm. And I even find I had one really interesting client who was talking about she suffers from PTSD and has severe anxiety and she's ex, she's ex-military and she has a super sensitive horse. Like oh. on, on top of just being a horse, she's a mare mm. and she's highly sensitive. Wow. And it's so interesting that she was learning tools with probably somebody like you to work through to bring herself down when she would start to get triggered or have an episode she had certain mm -hmm. skills and tools she could use and she started doing that with her while she was in proximity to her horse right. because <clears throat> she wanted to show her horse this is a process that I need to go through. And I don't want you to take my anxiety personally. I, you mm -hmm. know, cause when we're broadcasting it, horses have no idea if we're thinking about the guy at the gas station who just pissed us off or the horse in front of us pissing us right. off. We're just broadcasting right. this energy. And I thought that was so fascinating. Horses do understand and they really respond to congruency in people. Yeah. So if we say, hey, you're a little intimidating horse. I think I'm afraid of you. Let's take okay. this slow. A horse will just relax and respond to that so much better than if we go, you know, show them who's boss. Don't let them know you're afraid. It's like, yeah, that still doesn't work. Although that's been told to people for hundreds of years, it still doesn't work. Yeah, no, I, I when I was told that, and I tried it. It just didn't feel right. Yeah. Right. Like they're not supposed to trot. They're supposed to canter. I'm like, well, I'm trying to get there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it's not, you know, I'm doing what you're telling me to do. And it, it doesn't, it doesn't want to do it. So I'm just going to let it like, it's that, it was that fine line of not let it do whatever it wanted, but it might've needed a, a, I just felt I was asking it to do something a little too soon and it wasn't, it didn't trust me yet. Right. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. yeah. So, um, and then when it did it, then I was able, then it worked, you know? <laughs> yeah. Or giving yourself a moment because even if you think you're asking correctly, we're in, um, a foreign land learning to speak another yeah. language. Yeah. And yeah. sometimes we throw out the wrong word or we say something that doesn't make sense in context. And the horse is like, what are you talking about? <laughs> Yeah. And I would say that same is true with humans. You know, like we think we are being clear and direct and folks are like, I don't know what 
I have no idea what you're talking about. No idea. Yes. <laughs> um, or the kids are like, what? Like, that's totally foreign language to me. You know, you're supposed to be upset with me when I get upset, you know? Mm. No, I'm supposed to, when you get upset, I need to come down, right? Uh, like I have to balance myself to help you deescalate um, or internally, externally, whatever it looks like. And the when I've done, sometimes the first time I do that with kids, when I've done that with a kid, they're like, not it, it surprises them. And they, some, depending upon their history, they may either ramp it up because I'm not responding in the way they're used to or reacting in the way they're used to, or they're like, wow, I, I, this is no fun anymore. I'm not getting engaged. Like I'm not able to whirl around, you know, it's like, okay, do whatever you need to do. And I'll just, I'll be waiting. I'll that is waiting. so exactly how I deal with horses. Right. <laughs> Absolutely to a T. And especially with a horse that is become unsafe. I go, a lot of times I go, knock yourself out, just express your opinion. I'll be here when you're done, when you've spent and vented and said everything you need to say, we'll get started. Yeah, we'll get started. And it's mm -hmm. like having that safe space where somebody, mm -hmm. where you're not reacting and playing into it, the ping pong game of sort of action reaction, yeah. because the horses do trigger fear in, in people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Excuse yeah. me, I go, they're big animals. Yes. And physically, we can fall off, we can get hurt in a million different ways. And so setting up a situation where we go, okay, I'm safe, I don't need to be triggered. Like that is always what I'm having to teach humans yeah. to do, mm -hmm. is don't expect the horse to fill in the gap, like you mm -hmm. take care of you. And then you can be helpful to the horse, but it doesn't mm -hmm. work the other way around. Like, your horse is not going to fill in for you if you're having a bad day and you're, you know, can't get it together. Right. Right. Some will, but that's after a relationship is developed. Exactly. Sort of like that long-term relationship, either between friends or partners, right? It's just, you, you, there's more give and take when you have that relationship or a foundation for a relationship. Yeah. Makes complete sense. And you find that that, like, I find what you just described as some kids don't know what to do with it and they act out more, like they increase the defensiveness before they let it go. And others yeah. are just kind of confused and don't know what to do with it. It's, it's exactly the responses that I get as well from the same strategy of just offering the calm energy when the other just can't quite get there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's, and as you said earlier, it's just, um, providing that space, you know, just, just allowing them the space to do whatever they need to do before or when they're ready, um, mm -hmm. to follow through with what you're asking or just to be, just to be themselves. Really. They might not want to follow through, but just so they can learn, like, this is who I am. And horse is the same. Like, I just need to like, <laughs> yes. all I need to do, all I need to do. Yeah. Um, and then I can, once I can get there, then I know I can move on, but like all this other stuff. So just allowing for that, to, for them to just. And it doesn't, it, I find it doesn't have a time frame. Like a lot of times people will ask me, how long will this take? How long will that take with their horse? And it's really nice to hear that your experience with, with working with families is sort of the same, that some kids move faster, others don't. Some, you know, 10 months may feel like an incredibly long time frame to some people, but I go out of a whole lifetime, that's pretty minuscule. Yeah. And I had the, this great conversation once with two guys that had um, were doing Ironman marathons. And when we were talking about body mechanics, it was sort of the same thing, that the top athletes have to be happy slowing down to remedial work in order to alter or improve some kind of coordination that's going to give them an advantage later. And to relearn a physical coordination or to learn how to get control over your emotional state or even mental focus 
It's like, in order to learn that, everything has to go so slow to make that change. And then you leap forward. Yeah. But what I find is the wall I run into more often than not is people don't want to slow down. They don't want to go that slow in order to make a change. They just want to change one thing today and have it work magically. And I go, that isn't really true, I think, when we're talking bodies and minds and that complexity of relationships. I go, it's not a quick, easy thing to change. No, not at all. I mean, that that phrase, you got to go slow to go fast, is appropriate for so many situations. And when people learn about, or when I learned about neuropathways, when like you can sort of see um, uh, sparks, you know, like there, you can see the light bulb go off. Um, that, and when I would talk to kids about it, I was like, okay, so when you're a baby, you have these tiny little, let's think of them as like deer paths, right? And then as you get older, what you're learning becomes like a horse path. And then what's next, it's like a walking path. And then it becomes a wagon path. And then it became a road. And then it's a super high, like eventually all of those things work. So if you're trying to change anything that's significant, especially like mechanics, I feel like mechanics might be harder in a way. I don't know which, I I wouldn't know which one is. I would have to see the research to sort of see (laughs) if it's mechanical more than, more than mental but maybe both um, between muscle memory of the mechanics and the um, what's happening in the brain um, with those neural pathways. If you just try to do something new without the repetition or without retraining, and that's what like trauma work with folks is. And the same thing, what you're doing with horses, it's like trust first, and then you can, then you can work on, the fear, then you can work on the, or changing the, those neural pathways and right, exactly, but right back to deer trail. <laughs> right. Right. Which is, which is possible. I mean, they're, they're showing the science is showing that that's possible. Um, but yeah, adding more is not going to make it any better. It's just going to go into the same neural pathways that you already have. You know? like, exactly. So, so thinking about that, uh, really does i mean our brain wants to our brain wants to think all that confirmation like oh i'll just do this and and i'm i'm going to i know i'm doing the right thing and then they do something that they think is the right thing or read something that isn't the right thing but that confirms it's the right thing like maybe going on tiktok to sort of see how to do some right. <laughs> how to learn new new uh, skills um right or these um triathletes it was so interesting they said the people what sorts out the ones who sort of stay at a certain level and the ones that move up to become an elite athlete Mm. is that ability because it it goes against everything in your brain. It goes against every instinct to go back to what feels like a remedial level and have to retrain and build literally a new neural pathway Mm. for a different coordination or a different way of thinking. And we all tend to hate it because we have to be inefficient. We yes. you know, necessarily have to be inefficient, yeah. which means we have to slow down. We're not getting where we want to go. Yeah. But, um, these guys were talking about even how they were landing on their foot or how much vertical force they were losing while they were running. And how could I translate that into more horizontal force and reduce the vertical? And they had these gadgets that sort of showed them all of that. And I go, it was so fascinating. And it made me feel a lot better that any time in our life that we want to advance, we have to go through that painful period of slowing everything down, rethinking it, re-coordinating changing things until that becomes sort of the deep, the new default setting. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I mean, I'm just thinking about stress and the more stressed we are, the more stress we have. And then it just builds on, you know, you think about about like I'm stressed out and then our brain gets smaller (laughs) and and, uh, can't think and problem solve. And then it just gets smaller and not smaller, but just the focus is so much more limited. Right. Um, And 
and the antidote to stress is meditation, which is where you sit and do nothing. Nothing. You know, you just have to slow down and let your body experience um, a break. Right. Right. And that's just not something that. Or why some people take naps or go for walks or do a hobby. It's like, yeah, giving yourself that sort of downtime is like a reset button. Totally. And, and thanks for that, for the alternatives too. Um, Yeah. That adding more is not better all the time. Yeah. Or trying harder. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Just try harder. (laughs) The harder you try when you're tired, the worse it gets. Yeah, which is ironic if we're talking a type A personality competitive. (laughs) It's like that's all you want to do is work harder, try harder, be more disciplined. That's sort of the approach that served people their whole life. Right. And I go, well, horses don't think that way. They don't understand no pain, no gain. Their motto is no pain, no pain. That's what we like. No pain, no pain. And so horses have a way of sort of causing us the more ambitious we get it's like the slower progress goes Mm. or Mm -hmm. our horse winds up sick or injured because we're trying to push a horse with our same mentality and i go they just don't think that way yeah it doesn't work for them that's so true and similar to to humans with stress like the more stressed someone is the more likely they are to have an injury if they're an athlete um and feeling that anxiety and or your immune system just gets depleted and then you get sick with all sorts of things that with some pretty serious illnesses, right? Like a lot of those immuno um, yes. illnesses are due to somewhat, somewhat stress. Or in horses, uh, ulcers, stomach ulcers are not okay. uncommon. Like okay. it's pretty rampant in the competitive horse world to have issues with ulcers, digestion, colic, And all of that is the more often the body's in the sympathetic state, the more you're suppressing the immune system and the digestion. So it just can't function until you start shifting nervous systems. And that whole physiological component really reinforced, I'm not trying to get horses calm just to be safe, although that's a guaranteed side effect of it, but it's really the horse's health Mm -hmm. Like if we choose to live stressed out all the time, okay, we're doing it to ourselves. But when we're stressing out another in the relationship, we're actually creating the problem. Yeah, We're actually a negative influence on our horse, which is a little heartbreaking for most people to consider. Right. If, and if they, and I'm thinking like, they see their horse not as a being and as a thing, you know, as a tool, as a vehicle. Right. Yeah. 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 No, at a certain point I'll say you probably need a bike. (laughs) Yeah. You'd be better off with a bike (laughs) because if you don't, if you can't sort of learn, there is an emotional component to it. This is a thinking, feeling creature that has an opinion and if you don't want that as part of what you're doing, then get a bike. Like, yeah, no, that's at least if you get crooked on the bike, only you fall off. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you learn quickly if you if you're you can't blame it. the bike if you fall right. off. Yeah. Well, you can't. <laughs> oh, that's. So this has been great catching up with you, and I think I better start wrapping it up. I think it's close to an hour. Wow. It, it, yeah. It looks at holy moly. That one yeah, I know it always does. It's been, it's been fantastic catching up with you. Oh yes. You too. You too. And it's really reassuring to sort of talk to you in the world of, um, with what you've done across the board with athletes, mm-hmm. with soldiers, with families, with social work, we're not all that different. Like I go, we're not all that different. It's not all that hard to understand our animals if we just sort of look at it, like you said, this may be more kind of parent-child relationship or spousal relationship where we're not trying to demand obedience and control the other one, although 
I'm sure that happens too in the human world. Um, but it doesn't work any better with people than it does with horses. Very true. Very yeah. true. And I love all the analogies that are similarities, I guess, you found in some of the podcasts to your work. That's just super interesting to hear. Yeah, yeah. It keeps me going because uh, it keeps me listening too because I, you'll touch on something like, oh, I want to get more information about that you know, in terms of what your the human studies that you've been doing, the psychology and humans. And then I'm like, I, I want to look that up. I want to read, want to um, be, be reacclimated with that. Where is that the right word? Re mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah. Word search sometimes. No, it helps. Sometimes I have to slog through scientific research papers, but I go, there's these gems in there of understanding. And it it isn't, it by nature has to be precise and a little complicated. But what we get out of it when we read other people's work is another insight. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So thank you for what you're doing. It's just so exciting to see you flourish and, and doing something that you've loved since Oh my God. Since I was like, I knew you when I was nine and started. <laughs> right, yeah. right. Uh, <laughs> and you're making a career out of it and being able to interface with your sister and in, in that. And, and it's not really a career. It's more of a life. Um, it's actually. a bit of both. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I was honored uh, just to have this conversation and that you. Oh, and I have to tell you one that. last thing when okay. we came in contact and decided to do this podcast, the thing that keeps coming back to my mind, one of my strongest memories of growing up with you uh -oh. was going home for lunch where we used to walk home from grade school for lunch. And if your parents weren't home, we got to go to your house and make grilled peanut butter and chocolate sandwiches. <laughs> it's so funny. Penny was talking about I love those. Like every, and I, I have to say it was, it was the Bruins. Ann Bruins grandmother used to do it for her and we just copied it. So I feel uh. like. But um, yeah, that's so. That's a, Stephanie said the same thing. And I loved coming to your house because I didn't have to have like I could just eat peanut butter and chocolate. And I'm sure all the parents are like, "Can you believe those boys?" <laughs> Kids, like, well, we were we were sort of left loose. We were at left. Oh, we home. were Gen X. We were survivors. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, and the grilled totally. peanut butter and chocolate totally. sandwiches—it's a must try if if you guys yes. haven't tried it. Peanut just butter, like chocolate chips. Sandwich. Yeah. Lather it with yeah. butter and fry it. Oh my Love God, it. that thing is so good. <laughs> <laughs> well, we will have to catch up more, but I'm going to wrap okay. up the podcast here. Thanks for joining me. And thank you everybody for joining another episode of the Horse Geeks podcast. And we look forward to seeing you again next time.